Welcome to the Butterfly Broadcast, sharing stories of transformation after pregnancy and infant loss. I'm your host, Bailey DeMars. Hello, Karina. Welcome to the Butterfly Broadcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So excited to have you. So I know a lot about you, but please tell our listeners a couple interesting things about yourself. Um, I would say probably the most interesting is right now. So my husband's military and he's been gone for almost our year mark. And we've still got about like six to seven more months to go. So been single parenting for the last like year and we're just hoping he's home by Christmas. Um, And then, yeah. um, And the other interesting thing, so I'm kind of in my like dream job right now, but if I couldn't be doing what I'm doing, I'm a personal trainer. um, I would a hundred percent go into medicine as either like ER or trauma or like a flight nurse, something like that. Okay. So you're interested in the thrill of (laughs) adrenaline rush. That's (laughs) awesome. Okay, well, tell me a little bit about your family now, knowing that your husband is away. Yeah, so we uh, are actually our seven year anniversary is next week on the 18th. So we've been married seven years coming up on, and we met. He was my um, supervisor over my internship um, when I was doing uh, EMT at UVU. That's kind of how we met. We hit it off really fast. We met. And within a few weeks, we were dating each other and a few months later, engaged and married less than a year after that. So we've been, yeah, kind of fast, but when you know, you know. Um, Neither of us actually really were eager to start a family right away. We both wanted to take a couple of years. I was in the thick of school. My husband had just finished school and was in the thick of trying to get a career started and we knew that we would struggle with infertility and I had been diagnosed with endometriosis and most of my doctors had given me a less than 1% chance of ever having babies on my own. So uh, February of 2017, we went in to start the process of doing fertility work and step one was to go off birth control and wait three months and then have surgery and went off birth control in the middle of my paramedic school and six weeks later, I was six weeks pregnant. So we had our first, we found out we got pregnant with our first before we were even married a year. And he's now five. And then after that, when he was one is when we started kind of talking about maybe trying for a second baby because we knew there was the possibility of still struggling with infertility. And so about when he was about one, we started to try. We went off birth control and then struggled with infertility the second time. And uh, about a year into trying to get pregnant, we went to doctors and my doctor knew that we needed surgery again to remove the endometriosis, but my insurance refused to pay for it until I did two cycles of Clomid. So he did a cycle of Clomid and he goes, it's not going to work. Like it's not ovulation issue. Um, So he was very unoptimistic about any result, but did a cycle of Clomid and found that I was pregnant. So that was a big shock to us. We didn't think we were going to conceive. And and then about eight weeks later, we found out we were expecting triplets. 
So our Clomid, it's like a 10% chance of having twins and then a less than 1% chance of having triplets or higher. So both of our pregnancies have been a less than 1%. And so with our triplets, we had two boys and a girl. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And there's more to that story, which we will get to. Yes. (laughs) Wow. You have beat the odds. (laughs) Yes. Those babies were meant to be because we should never have been able to have them. Wow. That's a miracle in itself. Amazing. Okay. So you've painted the story for us on how your your family started. So tell us a little bit more about that caterpillar phase, um, maybe when things were normal and what life was like for you. Oh, well, I don't know if having a triplet pregnancy is anything within normal, but before before we got into the messiness of it, um, so I actually was super sick my whole, like, that whole pregnancy, um, but really sick the first, like, around six weeks. I started getting really sick, and this is before we had found out that we were having triplets, but I kept telling my husband, I was like, there's probably multiples, and genuinely thought we were having multiples, at mm-hmm. least twins, because there was a chance. Um, and actually the day before we had our first ultrasound, I had been, uh, bleeding and spotting and cramping. And so we went into it thinking that we were going to hear that we hadn't miscarried. And so I like, we had my husband there, my son there, cause I just needed as much support cause I just didn't want to have to face that alone. And, and we got the surprise of not hearing we were miscarrying, but hearing we were having three babies and. So, yeah, I mean, as far as like a triplet pregnancy, I mean, we had a lot of doctor's appointments. I think we had one to two a week uh, just because I was considered high risk with having multiples and our two boys were identical twins. And so they also shared a placenta. So that made us a little more high risk. So we had to check for um, twin to twin transfusion pretty often. Um, but yeah, it was actually like right in the thick of COVID too. So beginning of 2020 is when we found out we were pregnant with triplets and, um, yeah, March of 2020 is when everything shut down. So we kind of, it was nice cause we really spent a lot of time at home. I was really sick. I couldn't do a whole lot, um, as far as like trying to take care of my son. So my husband got to be home a little bit more. And, and so we spent just a lot of time during the shutdown, renovating our house and spending time with the family. And we had a couple scares during the pregnancy where um, we thought there was going to be issues. Our little girl had a cyst on her brain during one of the ultrasounds that they monitored. And um, our little boy, his name is Ronan, um, and he's the one I'll be talking about the most. But during our anatomy scan, they found what they call bright bowel, which is often an indicator of cystic fibrosis. And so we we're watching for that and um, had a couple of preterm labor scares around 15, 16 weeks. And so, I mean, it was kind of crazy, not super normal, but, but like not terrible for having triplets too. I mean, I made it, I made it my, what like my doctor thought I would make it to. He said somewhere between 20 and 30 weeks. And so you're feeling really good about that. But overall, like babies were growing really well, despite me being super sick. So Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I can't believe that was all during COVID. Poor thing. Yeah. So they anticipated 28 to 30 weeks. When did you end up going into labor? 
The first time was 27 weeks. Um, I actually had no idea I was in labor, but a coworker was counting my contractions and she's like, I think you should go in and, and didn't believe her. Uh, so I actually like spent like two to three hours, like picking up groceries and taking a shower before heading to the hospital. And when we got there, I was contracting a minute apart. And so I actually spent a week in the hospital trying to stop labor. Um, but that's when they gave me steroid injections just in case our babies came. But my contractions slowed down. And so I made it another three weeks at home on bed rest. And then we delivered at 30 weeks. Okay. Wow. So... What did that look like when after you delivered? Um, it was honestly really good. So, I mean, we knew that I wouldn't be having a C-section. Um, we didn't think I would be having it that day, uh, but we had gone in just because we had some concerns. And um, they ended up going, I started dilating and they couldn't stop that. So they called my doctor. We waited for like an hour and a half. It was like so calm, like it was just... I don't know, almost like the calm before the storm, but it was just so calm and so peaceful. And we got in, we had a really good delivery. Like it went really fast. All babies came out super healthy, kind of what you would expect for 30 weekers, but most of the, like they were big babies too. So they were doing really, really well for being born at 30 weeks. Um, they immediately went to the NICU. We had a huge staff in our OR because we had three babies and each baby had about four nurses plus all of my doctors and my nurses. So, but yeah, they went to the NICU and I mean, all doing really well. By the end of that first 24 hours, both of our boys were extubated and doing really good breathing on their own. And our little girl was still extubated, but doing really good. So we had, uh, first day, we obviously didn't get to hold them, but the, on day two, I got to hold um, one of our babies, same as Griffin. And then the next day was my probably my favorite day. And that's when I got to hold Ronan um, for the first time. And my husband got to hold Griffin. And so we had like a really good first three days. Wow. That's such a blessing that you can yes. remember those days with blondness. Yeah. So... I mean, I've had a baby at 36 weeks and he was on oxygen for several days. So that's a miracle that 30 yeah. weeks did so well. Yeah. I mean, they're still on oxygen, but but, but not needing to be fully intubated, which was really surprising to our nurses. Wow. So seems like things are starting to get a little bit more messy after day three. Yes. So it was actually the day I was feeling the best. I'd gotten ready to head to the NICU and one of the nurses, the nurse practitioner came in and informed us that they'd been monitoring Ronan over the night because he just had some abnormal vitals, but they had found that he had air in his abdomen and they didn't know what the source was. And so he needed to be life flighted up to primary children's because um, they couldn't do surgery for him, but he needed to have surgery. So that morning I had to call my husband. He was life flighted to primary children's and I was stuck in the hospital waiting to get discharged um, by my nurse and my doctor. And they were really good about it too, because I wasn't supposed to be discharged for another day, but my doctor was very adamant about making sure that I was taken care of and got out there that day. So by the time I had gotten out, um, out of the hospital, we had stopped at my in-laws house 
um, we had gotten the call that they had just, um, they were going into surgery. And so that gave us time to drive up to primary children's. We're about an hour away. And by the time we had gotten to primary children's, we got the call that the surgery was successful, that it went better than what they had expected. Initially, they thought it was his small intestine and it was his stomach that had perforated. So if it was a small intestine, they were going to have to re go in and do surgery six weeks later. But they're like, this is a one-time surgery. We won't have to go back in for any reason. They were really optimistic um, after getting that call that he was doing really well, he was stable. And as soon as we got upstairs, we'd be able to immediately go see him. Um, so yeah, <laughs> kind of <laughs> a little messy. Um, so he spent the day in the NICU. And at any point, if you want to ask questions, feel free. But yeah, we spent the night, mostly most of the night in the NICU after he was recovering. They were a little bit concerned that he wasn't coming off of the um, pain medication like they wanted to. He was having a little bit more difficulty breathing. But they also were like, he's a really premature baby and this is this can be typical. So they're like, don't worry. He looks really great other than that. So then the next day I was feeling really sore from C-section and we had right. run through the hospital trying to like get to our baby, just panicked. Um, so I had stayed home the next day, but my husband went up to primary children's and spent the night with him there after work. And he looked a little bit more swollen, but again, they weren't super concerned about anything, um, but they were still just monitoring him. And then the next day I was heading up, I had um, gone over to my, I had been at the NICU earlier with my other two and I was getting ready to head up to primary children's and at my in-laws house. And that's when we got the call. Um, sorry. But that's when the doctor called and let us know that um, he wasn't doing very good, um, that they were bagging him. And they said we needed to immediately get up there because they didn't know if he was going to make it before we got up there. And hardest call to have to give to my husband because he couldn't be on the line. But having to call my husband and let him know that he needed to leave work because our baby, we may not be able to make it to say goodbye to him. And I don't really remember much of what happened. I remember sitting there. My mother-in-law came up to me because I just was sitting there staring. And that's when I let her know. And she made sure to get my father-in-law. We didn't have any gas in our car from traveling so much. So they like lent us their car to drive up there. And um, I think that was the longest hour drive of my whole life. Just like praying and begging that by the time we got to the hospital, he would still be alive, that we could say goodbye and and like hold him because worst thing you could think of is your baby dying and you're not being there to hold him or to say goodbye. Um, but we got to the hospital and by some miracle, he had stabilized again. His oxygen had, he was like in the thirties um, when he had called and his oxygen was back up into the nineties, um, which was a huge miracle for us um, when we got there. And I think, Sorry, I don't know if this is even articulating well, but I think we both went into it with so much hope and optimism that we weren't going to experience child loss. Because, I mean, that's something we'd heard of, but you never expect it to happen to you. You never think you're going to be involved in that. And I think we became really optimistic at the fact that he was doing so well that he was breathing on his own for the most part again. But he was still critical 
um, the his doctor had let us know he was the sickest baby in the NICU. And that was saying a lot because there was a lot of sick babies up at primary children's. But no one really discussed with us that, like, what his odds were, which is understandable. But no one really prepared us that we were going to be losing our boy. And my husband and I, for the most part, sat by his bedside all through the night. Um, there was one point that I left to go pump and take a nap because I just, I mean, when we got to the hospital, we literally ran through the hospital. Um, and my adrenaline had started to wear off a bit to the point like my C-section was hurting and I was really feeling it. So I went and laid down for a couple hours and my husband came and got me and we traded off and I went and sat with our baby. And um, it was like three, four in the morning. He just started to to sat again. They had his ventilator up to the highest settings. They couldn't do anything more there. They came in and did an ultrasound of his heart and let us know he was in heart failure. <laughs> and by six in the morning, um, we had to make the decision to perform any more life-saving measures or to, sorry, but to take him into a room and just hold him as he passed away. And we both, I mean, we both were in medicine. We both um, knew, we both knew what his odds were um, and the quality of life he would have had um, if we tried to do anything else. So we took him into a room and uh, held him for over an hour before he passed away in our arms. And then we got to spend the rest of the day just holding him and they made sure to get molds for us. But yeah, that was, I think, the most unexpected thing. Um, we had a lot of family who, again, became really optimistic. And I think the second hardest call I ever had to make was to my, sorry, <laughs> to my two and a half year old who wanted nothing more than to be a big brother. He was so excited to have these triplets, but we had to call him, let him know that his baby brother died. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm sorry to make you relive that. It's good. <laughs> it, I mean, it's hard, but with that all, there's so many sacred moments that happen during that whole process too that while it's all hard and it'll never be easy, it's also, I mean, always helpful to talk, to like share and to have people know the process and what people go through when, when they lose a baby. Exactly. Yeah, your vulnerability goes a long way because it helps others understand and it also helps those who've been through it feel heard and feel like they can resonate with what you're sharing. You know, everyone's stories are different. You know, our hearts connect. So <clears throat> I would say that was as ooey gooey messy as that could possibly get. Um, so tell me a little bit how 
things went for you afterwards, both you and your family, how was that recovery? Yeah, so I mean, we obviously went through the whole grieving process, and I would say we're still trying to get through the grieving process because it was a bit hard. We still had two babies in the NICU that needed us that we needed to make sure we were there for. So it really took us a while to start the grieving process and to allow ourselves to heal. I think we kind of pushed everything down um, trying to just show up for our other three kids. Um, But I think one of the things as we were driving home after leaving the hospital separately, like we hadn't talked at all. Like it was a very silent car ride home. But I had gotten this impression that Ronan, um, there was more to his life than those six days we got with him. He passed away at six days old. And, um, but I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. And at the same time, my husband had also got this really strong impression that he was like, there's more to his life. Like, and we weren't sure if that was us just being sad and grieving that we're like, he should have lived longer, but that feeling just never went away of like, there's, there's more like he's, he has a purpose here. And so we, I mean, it was weeks after, I think it was after his funeral that we finally started talking about those promptings we each separately had. And that was when we both kind of had this idea to do something in his name. And I think that's really where a lot of our healing began. Um, so it was, I think it was even after our two babies, other babies were discharged from the NICU and they were there for two months. Um, but we, I mean, we spent two months in the NICU and it's really lonely in the NICU. Um, you kind of don't really have a say in what you can and can't do with your child, with your child. There's be fed at a certain time and bathed at a certain day or time and can't change their diapers. You can't just pick them up and hold them and we're just trying to find ways that we could connect. And we had both kind of decided that we needed to start NICU libraries. And so that's where a lot of like our healing came from was finding this purpose for him um, to, to help other families. Um, So we started with the hospital that uh, we delivered our babies at, which was Timpanogos hospital. And they were so receptive. Um, I think they probably, undermined a lot of upper management um, to get these Nikki libraries started for us. But um, I would say that's 100% where our healing started was was knowing that we had something to continue Ronan's name in um, and that would serve and help other people because uh, we knew what it was like to be in the NICU. And whether you're there for like a day or for a week or, you know, it's it's hard and it's lonely and you just want to find a way to connect. So we decided to start these NICU libraries. And that's where a lot of like our focus went to over the past several months trying to grieve. Um, I think we also were super open about talking about him um, and having a really good family support system who I think it's really easy for a lot of people to want to avoid talking about it or to avoid asking like those hard questions of like, okay, well, how can we like, I think the most common thing we got was, okay, well, we are two surviving babies. Do we still call them the triplets or do we call them the twins? And so having our family being so open 
um, with those questions really helped us along in our journey and having friends and family too, who, who were willing to ask the hard questions, um, who were willing to just show up for us. Cause I think that's another thing when you're grieving, you don't, you don't know what you really want. And if you were to ask me what I needed at the time, only thing I could tell you is I needed my son to be with me. I needed to not gone through that loss, which couldn't have been undone. And so trying to figure out what I needed was impossible. So having people show up for us um, in whatever way that they felt prompted or inspired was really helpful. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of, I think that's like been the biggest, the biggest healing is like knowing that we could put our grief into something healing. Um, and then also just like, I think one of the biggest changes in, in me through that whole process and I can't really speak for my husband. Um, but I think for him as well is you really, you learn to realize that there's no guarantees. Like you aren't exempt from bad things happening in your life. And I think it put more of a focus on really trying to like build relationships with people and do the things that we both enjoyed finding joy in careers, which again is why my husband's gone for the next seven months and why he's been gone for the last year is um, he wanted to do something and there's no guarantee what tomorrow will bring. And if there's something that can bring joy and happiness, then it's, you know, it's worth it to go for it because again, you're not guaranteed. You're not exempt from bad things. And, and this is literally the life you get and, and it should be enjoyed. And, and even through the hard, like you should still be able to find joy and happiness in those things. I could have said it better myself. I think that new perspective is definitely what you take away from a tragedy. And and like you said, you wish you had your son with you so you didn't have to learn that lesson. Um, I could have gained a perspective in a different way, um, but this is how you were supposed to learn this lesson. And you're a changed person. Like you said, you're not the same Karina 2020 that, you know, didn't even imagine you could lose a child, but now here you are. And I personally have seen your growth and, or not, I haven't seen the whole transformation, but I've seen the person that you are right now. And it's, more than impressive and that you're a single mom to those three four kids you're still parenting Ronan in his own way and I just think wow you're amazing um so if you you mentioned that people acting on their inspiration to help you and show up was one of the most helpful things for you what other advice would you have for a parent going through loss? I think I say this a lot and I think a lot of parents do, but I think the biggest thing is saying their names. Um, I, I think we want to alleviate any pain or hurt that's caused by bringing up that loss, but the pain is always there. And, um, 
anytime anyone asks me about Ronan, honestly, is one of the highlights of my day. I love being able to share about this little miracle boy who I'm, is is literally changing people's lives. Um, we're in two different NICU libraries right now and getting ready to start a third, but we've had the opportunity to meet some of the families who's been able to be impacted by it. And he really is having a purpose here and being able to like talk about him and share him. Um, he's still my baby. And I mean, one of my favorite quotes is a mother's instinct is to protect their children's, but a grieving mother's instinct is to protect their, their child's memory. And, and so letting us have a space to be able to talk about our babies, um, talk about the pregnancy, the loss, um, the good things, the bad things. That's honestly, I think if you can't give much giving of your time and your ear to just sit and listen to us, talk about those babies, um, but also just be feel those promptings instead of like waiting to be told what to do. Because as a grieving parent, I didn't want to have to make any decisions. Most days I didn't want to get out of bed let alone have to decide who's going to bring me dinner or what I needed in that moment. But just acting on those promptings because promptings aren't just coincidental. If you feel a prompting that you need to go bring dinner or bring a treat, like sometimes it's just something small that you need to be remembered. Or maybe it's, you know, this mom is struggling. She can't even put a meal on the table for her family. I need to bring a meal, you know? Mm-hmm. And so usually the promptings or the the things we received were what we needed in that day, whether it was a meal because we weren't in a position to want to cook or had food in the house because we hadn't gone grocery shopping or sometimes it was just a flower and a note just letting us know we were being thought of during the times we were feeling the most lonely because regardless of how many people you have surrounding you during your loss, you feel really lonely, you feel really isolated and it's really hard. So. Well, thank you so much. I think that you nailed it on the head that people want to help, but they just don't know how. So just acting and not waiting for you to say something or approve of something because any good, you know, intention will hopefully be received well. So thank you for sharing that any last thoughts you want to share um no I mean I feel like I don't know I would say be kind and receptive just be kind and receptive to those going through loss or maybe even without knowing what they're going through just being kind and receptive to people because you could look at someone and not not know their whole story, not know everything that they've been to get there. Um, but just most people have been through a lot. And I think especially when it comes to like miscarriage and child loss, it's not something that's talked about a lot because um, it's uncomfortable. Um, but being kind and receptive and, and also being willing to sit in the discomfort with those as well. That was beautifully said. Even if you don't quite understand it because you haven't gone through it, 
being willing to sit there and be uncomfortable is one of the best ways you can show someone love. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Karina. And um, honestly, I'm just going to edit myself out because you said everything so beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, like, I'm so excited. If it's okay, I'm going to use your episode first because you just nailed it. And you're the perfect example of a butterfly <laughs> like even though everything isn't like rainbows and butterflies for you right now because of the situation and your life isn't better for having lost Ronan but you found beauty in his honor and I really love that you are the perfect example and even though you don't always feel like it I know like I I have been like a single mom for a week and I do this like once a month and I feel so sorry for myself, but I didn't realize your husband was gone for so much time. Yep. I don't know so do we're like over halfway. Mm. So. Wow. Okay. Well, sounds like your kids should come over to my house and play. <laughs> They would love it. Just be prepared for messes because they're good at that. My house is a mess right now, too. (laughs) Okay. Well, I'll let you go catch up on your chores and hopefully some sleep. But I'm so excited to edit this and get it out. You're amazing. And thank you so much. You're really, really good at (laughs) explaining your story. So, uh. I just hope it comes through because my voice is still so <laughs> shot. Oh, you poor thing. And like making microphones. crying makes it so much worse. No, you did such a good job. Like, I'm just speechless. <laughs> I don't even know what to say after <laughs> you so eloquently said everything. So I'm just, I'm just going to edit myself out so everyone can no. hear you. But no. thank you again. I mean, you're amazing. And I am just going to thinking of you and Ronan all night so thank you thanks Bailey I'm so excited for you to do this okay I'll let you know when it's posted okay sounds great thank you thank you so much have a good night you too bye speaking of transformations this podcast is brought to you by perhaps the most transformative product that exists for your skin promyosin an acne treatment that actually works and fast. My cute husband has had acne since he was a teenager and this summer he used promyosin and for the first time ever his black was clear. I'm not kidding I saw a difference after one use and five days later the acne was gone. Promyosin comes from the Cara Poloni skincare line and I love and use all of her products, including micro needle powder cleanser, nano silver spray, healing facial serum, hydrating kiss mist spray, and their lip balm. My favorite part is that every ingredient is natural and supplied by the wholesaler Bulk Naturals. So get your skin transformation started at carapaloni.com or simply just Google Promyosin.